that phrase, I'm running to your arms, it very much reflects the study that we are in, uh, that we began last weekend, uh, that uh, is about pursuing Christ, a knowledge of Christ and the power of Christ in our lives. How many of you could use a little more power of Christ in your life? Yeah. And so that's what we're pursuing and trying to understand and trying to dig in on. Uh, Let me just point out for those of you in the house, if you have the paper notes, the date on there is wrong, uh, and that's my fault. I don't blame that on anyone but myself. Uh, But uh, it it is, uh, this weekend is actually uh, the 17th and 18th weekend. Last weekend we talked about uh, counting gain as loss, and we're going to be talking about counting loss as gain. We're digging in on this amazing declaration I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ, and I want to know the power of his resurrection. And that's what we've been uh, digging into, uh, and that's what we're going to be digging into once again tonight. Last weekend, we learned that this is an amazing, victorious statement, but it flows out of another powerful uh, statement and thought about gain and loss. And that's what we're looking at uh, this this thing of how how those go together. So we're in Paul's letter to the Philippians, and he's in jail while he's writing this. It's about 10 years after he founded the church. We went over some of that last weekend. But uh, we're going to pick up with just verse 7 through 11. So I ask you to give your whole attention to the word of God, to the voice of the Lord as he speaks among us through his word. But... Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now let's stand and let's give thanks to God. Father, I thank you for word. Thank you for word made flesh in the person of Jesus. I thank you for word as gospel that comes to us. I thank you for Apostle Paul, who in his life and his journey brings such a richness and testimony of the way that you gripped him with grace so that we might be gripped with that same grace. God, may we know that truth. May we know you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. We talked last week about how it was nearly 30 years after meeting Jesus that Paul was still trying to get to know Jesus. 
And it's just an amazing kind of thought to ponder. Of course, he used this amazing word that we learned last weekend. The Greek word is ginosko. I want you to say that with me again. We're going to know that word, ginosko. And ginosko, it means to know absolutely, to know by experience, to be aware of, to feel, to understand with certainty and resolve. And so Paul, what Paul was saying was, I want to know Christ, absolutely, and I'm not done with that. I want to know Christ by experience. I want to experience all of Christ that there is to experience and all of the power of his resurrection that I can experience, to be aware of and to feel and to, and to understand in such a way. And, and that's so much more than a casual acquaintance or head knowledge. We talked about that last weekend. But it's a word that describes a long process of getting to know someone. I was pondering that this week, and I thought, this is what relationship is all about. And the best way I, I would describe it is that it's a, like a marriage relationship. So let me describe it in that way. Uh, Pastor Ann and I have been married for 42 years and a half or so. This year, later this year, will be 43 years. She was only seven when we got married. Um, but I, I thought about it. I thought about it this week, and I thought, I think I'm starting to get to know her. I think I'm starting to get to know her. Um, now, let me qualify that and say, I think I know her better than anyone on the planet, except Jesus. But Jesus knows her better, and if there's something I don't understand, I, I just talk to Jesus, and, and we, we start working it out. But, but it occurred to me, I was reflecting on this, I discover new things all the time. 42 and a half, there were some years before that when we were dating and courting and, and getting to know each other. And sometimes I, I, I counsel, uh, I, I love doing premarital counseling because this is one of the things that I share with couples. And I say, you know, y'all think you know each other, but you're going to really get to know each other. And actually, then the other thing is you're going to change. How many of you would you say you've changed over the years? <laughs> and so this is what happens. But I discover new things all the time. I, I'm amazed at her passion. And I marvel at her energy. And, and I am intrigued by her creativity. She has ways of doing things that I would have never thought of. I just wouldn't have thought to do, do it that way. And I'm challenged all the time by her tenacity. She just won't turn loose. How many of you know that? This is my wife, and this is your, your pastor also. Um, and also, she knows me better than anyone on the planet, except Jesus, I think. I'm not sure she marvels at, at, at what she knows about me. Uh, but I, I'm confident she knows my strengths and my weaknesses and my faults uh, and my vulnerabilities and my insecurities, all of those things. And we continue to get to know one another. Isn't that marvelous? That's what the journey is all about. And, uh, and that's what relationship is all about, and it happens over time. And, I, and it's my intention to keep getting to know her and for her to keep getting to know me over the decades that are ahead. And it is very much the same in our relationship with Jesus. And, and so when we say, well, I met Jesus, I got to know Jesus. Yeah, I know Jesus. I met Jesus on this day back when. What we really, we don't have a clue. That means you've kind of walked past 
It's like walking past someone on the street and saying, well, I know them. No, 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 no. Our relationship with Jesus begins with a grace, what I call a grace encounter. Paul described it, and I love the way he described it. We go to it many times in Ephesians chapter 2. He said, it's by grace you have been saved. He saved you by grace. Don't ever forget that. And you receive that through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's a complete gift. It's all one way. He, he took hold of you, and don't forget that, by his grace. And, and, and it's not a result of works, lest anyone should boast. Now, you have to receive by faith. Yes, there's a response. We talk about that a lot. That's what the beginning point is. Jesus met Saul, and we, we study that in the Bible, uh, in the midst of his sin. And Saul, boy, Saul knew that better than anybody. On the road to Damascus, and and then Saul began, he, he began immediately to have to trust Jesus by faith, because he was blind. <laughs> Jesus had this way of getting Saul's attention. His name was Saul at that time. Later he's called Paul, and I'm going to talk about that. We meet Jesus in, in different ways, uh, and it may not be as dramatic, but we meet Jesus. Your relationship with Jesus has to begin somewhere. It begins at a certain point. And it's at that point that he reaches to you by grace and you say yes. That's all you can do. Well, you can say no. That would be stupid. Okay. But he reaches toward you and draws you and you say yes. And that's what faith is all about. Now, let me tell you about this process, this process of time. In, in your notes, I have the detail of this. But uh, the Pharisee Saul, uh, he became... Uh, Apostle Paul, but that didn't happen instantly. It happened over a, a pretty lengthy period of time. When we're reading the Bible, we just kind of go to the next page, go to the next page, and it, it looks like it just happened in about a week. That's not the case at all. So I, I've given you this timeline. As near as we can tell, Saul was born in about 5 AD, uh, and he was a Roman citizen born in Tarsus. That, that's what he was. And he talks about that. He uses that. God uses that later on. He studied under the, one of the most famous rabbis in all of history, Gamaliel. And so his, not, his, his theological mind, his Jewish mind, was honed under this great rabbi. He identified himself, and at a certain point he joined the party of the Pharisees. And there were these different parties within Judaism. He identified himself as a, and they were the people of the book. He said, I know the book, and I memorize it, and I try to live by it. And then he, as his first mission, and he was probably about 27 years old, he began persecuting the church. That's where we kind of first see him on our radar in the book of Acts. Um, and then he met the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. And we find that in Acts chapter 9. It's that dramatic moment. Now, all that is what we would call B.C. Uh, and, you know, if you don't talk about your life that way, you probably know someone that does. Somebody will say, well, all that was B.C., Okay, do you know what I'm talking about? Nod and let me know. Okay, good. So this was B.C. for uh, for Paul in his life as Saul. Beginning in about 34 A.D., that, that's when he was converted. Where did he go? He traveled to Arabia and stayed for about three years. So all of a sudden you have this, this three-year period of time. We don't actually know what happened while he was there. What is Arabia? Well, it's what would today be the Arabian Peninsula, Saudi Arabia. It was not a country. It was, it was a place that had a lot of different tribes 
and, and different towns, and there were different gods in each town, and a lot of them worshipped the moon, and that's, that's the Arabian heritage that was going on in that part of the world at that time. Why was he there? I don't know. It may have been just to get away from everything else and think and do some of this re, revaluing that, we're gonna talk, that we've been talking about. He returned to Damascus, but he was in danger, so he went back to Tarsus. He lived in Tarsus for 10 years. I mean, that's huge. I think about 10 years. It's a really, what were we doing 10 years ago? I mean, that's a big chunk of time that we, we don't really have accounted for. What happened during that period of time? People, all we can do really is speculate. We don't know. Some think that he may have been married. He may have gone back to his marriage, and then he may have been widowed. We don't know what happened. He seems to understand marriage, but he's not married by the time we uh, see him and, and we encounter him in uh, the rest of the book of Acts and the rest of his ministry. By about 47 A.D., Barnabas hears about this brilliant guy that's teaching probably in the synagogue, and he's talking about Jesus, and he's just an amazing teacher. And this has been going on. And so Barnabas says, I heard of this guy. I'm going to go and get him and bring him back to Antioch, which was closer. You know, it was in what would today be Lebanon area. And coming back to Antioch, and that was the first missionary church, and they sent him and Barnabas out on missionary journeys. And we first see Saul being called Paul. See, that didn't happen that day. Paul was his Roman name. He started using his Roman name instead of his Jewish name. Why? Because he was connecting with people in the Roman world. And that was a good reason to do that. It was while he was on the island of Cyprus. And now, what, 14 years later, Paul is writing from a Roman prison to one of the churches that he had planted during that, those missionary journeys. So meeting Jesus, for him, he says, called for a radical life reassessment. And that's what we started to study last weekend, that Saul went through this accounting and revaluation. Whatever gain I had is lost <laughs> for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of, my, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And then he, he concludes, he says, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ is greater than anything. There's nothing that compares to it. There's no accomplishment, no achievement, no, no place of study, no experience in life that even comes close to knowing Christ. Nothing is greater, nothing is better. Now, I would suggest to you that that's, that's the, the journey that we are on. Now, if you meet Jesus at a very young age, you might say, well, I've not had a radical revaluation. Probably not. Hopefully, as you grow, because you were in some form of Christian education, you were in Sunday school, you were in BBS, you were in camps and, and learning the Bible along the way, as you encountered the things of the world, you did a valuation of those things. Because if we don't do that valuation, we're just going to be lost to the world. That's what's going to happen with us. He goes on from there, and, and for the Apostle Paul, he says, even with all of his religious accomplishments, uh, it was even more radical because it was all at one time. And next to the worth of knowing Christ, he calls everything else rubbish. And we talked about that last weekend. 
But there was purpose in this revaluation. Listen to what he says in, in verses 8 and 9. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, I want nothing more than to gain Christ and be found in him. That's our richest gain. Not having a righteousness of my own, he had concluded that any other righteousness is inadequate. Anything that, that we think we've accomplished by our works is completely inadequate. It's a faux righteousness. It's fake. There's only one righteousness. And he had discovered this. But instead, that righteousness which comes through faith in Christ. And that's what leads up to this, what I'm going to call the big idea. And the big idea is that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. So what is that power about? The word power uh, is the word dunamis. So that's your Greek word of the day. Okay, Let's say that together. Dunamis. Let's say it a little stronger. Dunamis. Okay. And it's where we get the word dynamite. The first definition is force. And, and uh, But it, it talked in, in biblical times about a miraculous power or an ability. Um, but I, I found it amazing to think about force because, you know, we have this religion of Star Wars that talks about the force and the dark side of the force and all of this sort of thing. I mean, it's, it's that kind of concept, but... We know that force to be God himself and to be the force and the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of his resurrection. Paul wanted to experience that. And part of what I want to get to is how do we apply that in life? But we can't get there without going through the process that Paul went through to understand it. The dictionary defines power in this way, the ability to do something or act in a particular way, or the capacity or ability to direct or influence behavior of others or the course of events. That's what the dictionary defines power as. And if you think about it, and I've thought about it a lot, um, our world is sort of driven by this power thing. Um, Seeking power, trying to harness power, trying to get a hold of power. In many, many, you know, people would say, well, it's power and money, but money is just power. It's just, a, it's just, but it's power. It's the ability to do something or to direct and influence others or the course of things. And so whether it's religious power or, or political power or economic power or relational power, our, our world seems to say that's what drives everything. And in our hu- humanness, I'll call it, we seem to want to harness power for our desires and, inten- and intentions. And that's one of the struggles that we have with this whole idea, is, is we say, okay, the power of resurrection, I want that so I can do that. I, I, I want that so that I can do that sort of thing. I can unleash that in the way that I want. Friends, that's not Bible at all. That's not gospel at all. In fact, that way of approaching power is really the root of our original sin in the garden. When the, uh, when the serpent said, when you eat of the fruit, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. You'll have the power. You'll have the force if you just eat this fruit. And that was the temptation. So resurrection power, I want to suggest to you, is not 
so much something that we wield as it is something that we yield to or to which we yield. And if we don't get that, we're never going to get it. We're never going to understand it. We're never going to experience it. You will not experience the power of resurrection in your life as long as it's something in your mind that you want to wield. Once we understand that it's something that we yield to, wow, that opens up everything. In verse 10, he says, uh, he talks about this a little bit more. Um, Knowing this power means sharing in his sufferings that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. You see, knowing the power of resurrection calls us to a journey that involves loss. It absolutely goes with any gain that we would have through resurrection, through Christ. He, he, say, he goes further to even say, um, becoming like him in his death. Now, I don't know how that struck you, but this is very much all a part of that same verse, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Does that mean, Pastor Jeff, that we have to be crucified? I thought that he was crucified so I wouldn't have to be crucified. Amen? Yeah. I I don't believe this means that we are supposed to be crucified or die in, in in that manner of his death. But, in fact, that's not likely. It's possible. But becoming like him in his death means a couple of things. If you observe the way that Jesus died, this is what you'll see. He was completely surrendered to the will of God. We see that in the garden. He was completely surrendered. He said, this is really hard, Father. If there's a way that this cup could pass from me, I would rather this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Secondly, he was completely surrendered to the work of the Spirit. And we can do that work of surrender as well. And and finally, completely committed to his sacrificial love, the sacrificial love of God. Those are the three ways. If we live a life that is surrendered to, to the will of the Father, surrendered to the work of the Spirit, and committed to his sacrificial love, that means we're getting out of the way and the power of resurrection can be released and unleashed and received by others around us. Jesus taught this consistently. And it may not be the things that we typically focus on, but Jesus taught that in the kingdom, loss is gain. In Luke chapter 9, he said, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. It's part of that, the kind of upside-down nature of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. It's not the, the way that we would try to grab at things. If you want to have life, you need to let go. If you want to have life, you need to be sacrificial. You need to be a servant. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? If you're grabbing for the world, you're going to lose everything that's important. The Apostle Paul said it a little bit differently. He said that even to die is gain. I can't think of a bigger loss. I mean, if we just say, well, what are the big losses that we can experience? The biggest loss is to die, you know. Well, that's, that's what we would think. And Paul says that even to die is gain in Philippians 1.21. 
For, to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. To live for Christ is the greatest thing ever. There's nothing better. Um, but even better, he says, is to die for Christ. Even if that's in the sense of setting aside my life for Christ, my desires, my agenda, the things I have in my mind, and in doing so gain in him everything. Dying for Christ is 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 most likely setting aside our desires and the, the things that we want uh, in order to pursue the will and the heart of Christ. It's what we were singing about. I, I run into your arms. There's nothing else that's important. Our problem is that we live in the midst of a, a world that has a worldly mindset that teaches that power is to be taken. That's the world that we live in. And sometimes in our sort of uh, Christian uh, culture, we prefer the idea of Jesus serving us or Jesus or using the power of Jesus toward our own ends. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe that the Lord wants to bless you. I absolutely believe that. And I absolutely believe that he desire, He has a plan for you and it's a plan not to harm you but it's a plan to bless you and to prosper you. I absolutely believe that. But we also need to understand that, that knowing Jesus and the power of Jesus is not getting Jesus to you know, shine our shoes and things like that. There's one incident that I love because it demonstrates, our, I, I think, our human failing in this. Jesus sent some messengers into a Samaritan village, and he said, get, you know, prepare the way because I'm going to go in and I'm going to go and, and preach there. So uh, go and, and get things ready. And the messengers, I guess they were some of the disciples, they came back and said, they don't want you. <laughs> they say, don't come. They are unwilling to receive you. And so James and John, I, I love this, they asked the Lord, he said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven <laughs> and, and, and destroy them? Because we're ready. And we know you have that power, and we've seen some of that power, and you've even given us some of it when we've gone out ministering. We're ready to call down the power. That's not what it's about. That's absolutely no, not what it's about. And he, and he explained that to them. We tend to gravitate toward that idea that if we can just wield the power of Jesus rather than yield to it, then we can have whatever we want. And that's not it at all. Mark chapter 9. He sat down and he called the 12 and he said, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and the servant of all. He taught this powerful servanthood. And it was, it was uh, foreshadowed, it was prophesied all, all through the book of Isaiah that the servant who would suffer to save others. And so we have verses like this, and by his stripes you are healed. And I've seen this over and over again, that as we walk in that by our stripes, others are healed. But out of the sufferings that we experience, out of the losses we experience, there are those around us who find healing and hope because he's using that in their lives. And we don't want to miss that. We don't want to miss the power of servanthood that was lived out by Jesus. Jesus taught that death and resurrection always go together. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. In John chapter 12, he said, I tell you the truth. And I like this version. It's a little different from the ESV. But he says, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies,
means only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Whenever there is resurrection, there has to be death. Because death, uh, resurrection only comes out of death. They go together. And so in the kingdom, it's this kind of weird thought. Loss is always counted as gain. And Jesus even talked about it in very specific ways. In Matthew chapter 19, he said, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. There's no loss in this world of anything in this world that will not be so much magnified in eternity. And so we need to understand that and know that as it comes. The problem is that we live in a culture that counts gain as gain. We want to see some gains. Don't you want to see the graphs going up? I do. And there's nothing wrong with that. But if that becomes our whole understanding, our whole culture, then we're going to miss it. We live in a culture that says, if you win the lottery, that's it. You you just went to heaven. Most of the studies show that the lottery winners don't do so well. It's really, really sad what happens to lottery winners. If we can just gain some property or wield some power. I don't know if you've noticed, but I've seen some people, some, some stories lately that just really caught my eye very recently. I don't know if you read about Kent Taylor. Kent Taylor was the founder of Texas Roadhouse. Age 65, he had amassed a fortune of $600 million, and he took his own life because of uh, COVID-related symptoms that he had, and it was tinnitus that was just driving him crazy. And so in the midst of that tremendous loss, and and I read his history. I just went through I was just kind of fascinated by his story. In a 25-year period of time, he went from being a manager of a, a, a Kentucky Fried Chicken to a $600 million um, massive uh, expression of business. And, and then when this came in, he faced many, many losses along the way. Three of his first restaurants failed completely. And yet somehow he could not get past this. And friends, we need to bring the message of hope into our world. Amen? In January, uh, Donald Tober, I don't know if that name means anything, but he's the guy that invented sweet and low. You might say, well, I don't like that stuff. But he, he had built a $30 million fortune. He was a, an incredible um, Jewish philanthropist. And at age 89, he took his own life after battling Parkinson's disease. And I I have relatives that are battling Parkinson's disease really, really hard. We need to gather around people and and bring hope to the world that is around us. And And that's just the beginning. I mean, hardly a week goes by that we don't hear about a celebrity who either has mysteriously or by overdose or by suicide left us. Uh, And these are are people who have all the things that the world is seeking. They've got it in their hands, and they just, you know, at very young ages, saying, it's just not enough, and I I don't know what else to do. And in despair, um, they destroyed themselves. Now, we've been through a season of great loss, haven't we? (laughs) 
loss of freedom and loss of jobs. I I read that um, 200,000 businesses are not coming back. Um, Loss of life as we knew it. Money, investments, and, and, and friends, loss of family. Sometimes those dearest to us. So how in the world can we count loss as gain? I mean, I, I've had some losses in my life. I, I immediately think of some of the stories of people who came through loss because so many times loss can actually um, strengthen people. I don't know if you, if you know the story of James Dyson, but he's the inventor of the Dyson vacuum. I don't know if you have one. Um, but it's an amazing vacuum cleaner, and, and uh, it's a, an amazing invention. But I didn't know that he had failed with 5,100 prototypes. That's not a few. Before he, he came to the right, the right structure, the right ingredients, that built a $4.5 billion company. Or you might know the name Steven Spielberg. Have you heard of this fellow? But I didn't know that he was rejected by the University of Southern California School of Cinematic Arts twice. Twice. I don't know about you, but I would go back and say, who's on that selection committee? (laughs) Because you you need to be a little sharper. And, of course, his films have grossed maybe more than any other producer-director, $9 billion. Or you may know... uh, a fellow named Thomas Edison, he was told by his teachers he was too stupid to learn anything. Too stupid to learn anything. Wow. If somebody tells your child that, you need to say, let's go in a different direction and find a different path. Because uh, what an amazing inventor. He, he went on to hold more than a 1,000 patents. Or one really familiar to us in Central Florida, a fellow named Walt Disney. He was once told by an editor that he lacked imagination and had no good ideas. <laughs> this is the guy who invented a whole new word called imagineering. I mean, he thought outside the box before people knew there was a box. And, and Walt Disney Company is worth uh, growing over $202 billion. But I want to tell you, Paul is talking about something bigger than that. You know, when I have a financial loss, and I've had some, I haven't had any massive financial losses. I've had some relatives that lost everything, you know, in, in dot-com bubble and things like that. But when I've had financial losses, I find myself digging in, and I, and I, I remember, I'm reminded of who to depend on. And it's really a good thing. I mean, it's really a good thing. Loss becomes gain. Relational losses remind me of whose opinion, because there's sometimes people that just, they, they won't talk to me anymore, and I don't know why. Well, what happened to you? You just, you won't answer anything. And I have to remind myself of whose opinion is really important. Preachers have a hard time with this. Whose opinion is really important? I, I have an audience of one. I love all of you, but I have an audience of one. And freedoms that we lose, they always remind me of where my liberty truly lies. So we can face some terrible losses, job and house and career. I know. I mean, I talk to people that have lost a marriage in one way or another, a relationship, a parent, a spouse, a child. And these are enormous. How do we count these losses as gain? How in the world? 
And so here's some questions that, that I find myself asking, learning to ask. And they're questions I ask God in times of loss. God, how do you want to manifest your power in this situation? Because I don't know how to do it. And I, I think God says, I'm ready. God, how do I get out of the way so that you may be glorified in in this time of loss? Because I want you to be glorified. God, what are you trying to show me or teach me in this time of loss? Because a lot of times I have a time of loss and it's like, I, I have a lesson that I need here. I messed up and I need to, I need the correction. God, how am I to walk more closely with you through this time of loss? I know it's not forever. God, how are you manifesting the power of your resurrection among those around me through this loss? How can people see the power of resurrection in me in this time of loss? studying this and I was reminded of 2 Peter 1.3. It's an amazing verse. It's a, it's a different, different apostle, but uh, Peter wrote, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That's blessing. Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. He's got everything you need no matter the time of loss. And that's where I want to start digging in in the next few weeks is how do we apply this? How do we apply this to marriage? How do we apply this to a relationship? How do we apply this in a job situation? How do we apply this in our finances, our financial world? The end point for the Apostle Paul was this. He says, that I may attain the resurrection of the dead that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that I may, by any means possible, attain the resurrection from the dead. That's the end point. So let's pray together. It may be that you have been through some devastating loss. Don't give up. Don't give up. The knowledge of Christ and the power of resurrection can bring life into any situation, no matter what it is, no matter the loss, no matter the difficulty, no matter the the part of the journey that you're on. Don't give up. Father, I thank you for the truths that the Apostle Paul, sometimes I feel like he screams them to us across these centuries. And I thank you for that. I thank you that you speak to us into our hearts in a, in a way and with a power that we need to hear. If you've never begun this journey, you have to have a beginning point. And it starts when you say, yes. I get it. You've been trying to save me by grace, and I don't understand all of that, but I say, yes, and I want to begin this journey. And you can do that now in a simple time of prayer, but the journey is going to be a long one. Father, I thank you so much that you sustain us, that you you love us, you, you wrap your arms around us, and I thank you that you give us the privilege of running to your arms, that we may know your embrace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
powerful message and a powerful time of prayer. If you want to pray with someone else after the service in particular, come and meet us over at the table where the lamp is lit. For the rest of you, we're so glad you came to worship in person and those who are watching on live stream. We pray that this message will ring deeply in your heart, in your spirit, and that it will help you help others when they come to you and say, I can't believe in God because so many bad things have happened in my life. And so as we leave today, let's go forth as a people who have the good news. Let's go out in the lobby and share with each other and encourage each other as what our faith walk is going to be about this week. Um, our queens, our rummage sale queens will be out there. They'll be asking for you to help this week sometime. There will also be um, people at the giving tree out there if you want to make a donation to help someone go to summer camp so that they can grasp hold of what it means to know Jesus. Let's stand as we get ready to go. If you are here for the first time, I'd love to meet you. We'll be over at the table to your left, and we have a gift for you as a first-time worshiper. Let us go in the powerful name of Jesus, running into his arms so that he might take hold of us and embrace us. And we might know him and know the power of his resurrection in Jesus' name.